Please open your Bibles, or if they're already open from the Scripture reading, turn back to the book of Numbers. We're going to be taking a look at one of the most enigmatic characters in all of the Bible. And one of the things I really like about the Bible are the character portraits that we find therein. And when it comes to the character portrait of Balaam, we find that it is a complex portrait, that God gives us here a puzzle to put together. And I enjoy puzzles, and especially puzzles like this one. And so that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. Now, Balaam, his story is begun there in Numbers chapter 22. And this goes all the way back to about 1450 B.C., We're here a long time in ancient history, and what is also fascinating about Balaam, not only what is contained in the Bible, but what also was recently discovered, recently being in the last hundred years, when we're talking about archaeological discoveries, recent means a little different than it does in other contexts. But in 1967, there was a discovery in Deir Allah in the Jordan area, where archaeologists found the remnants of an inscription that had been hanging on a wall that dated back to around 840 B.C. And here you see an artist's reconstruction of what that wall would have looked like before the earthquake around 840 B.C. that destroyed the building and the inscription fell off and broke into pieces. And yet, in 1967, we were able to unearth and uncover a lot of those broken pieces and to put together some of that inscription that refers to the person of Balaam, a prophecy recorded outside of Israel in the Jordan area, written not in Hebrew, but in some kind of mixture, a kind of mixture of Aramaic and other Western Semitic languages, a very interesting language, a very interesting inscription, and it probably dates back to a long time prior to 840 when it was destroyed. So here you can see some of the pieces of the fragment that fell off the wall that's been put together, and you can go over to Jordan and take a look at the Balaam inscription as it has been called. And it's a, it's a fascinating discovery, and I'm not going to go into the details of it. It doesn't record the same thing that's in the Bible about Balaam. It records a different supposed prophecy about Balaam, and there are significant differences between this Gentile account of the prophet Balaam and the biblical account, the Jewish account of the prophet Balaam. But this adds to the enigma, this adds to the mystery, this adds to the complexity, and also adds to the historicity of the Bible that we find that this seer, this prophet, Balaam, was not only known among the Israelites, but was known among other ancient Semitic peoples as well, further giving evidence archaeologically of the historical reliability of the scriptures. So, With that in mind, we can take a look at our outline for today, where we have the puzzle of Balaam. And when you're putting together a puzzle, you start with the edges. Everybody who's put together puzzles knows that that's the strategy if you want to try to complete the puzzle. You find all the edge pieces and you make the corners and the sides. And then you work your way towards the center of the puzzle. And when it comes to Balaam, there is one key piece of the puzzle that will come to last that will help the whole picture to make sense. So let's start with the edges of the puzzle here in Numbers chapter 22. 
I'm going to start there in verse 1. I'm going to read just the first four verses where we are introduced not only to Balaam, but also to Balak, the king of Moab. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, that would be the Euphrates River, in the land of the people of Amah, and that's ambiguous translation is because we're not quite sure what he's talking about here, and to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of me. Now we can continue on in a moment there, but I just want you to see where we are in the story of God's covenant people. The Old Testament is a revelation of God's character and nation as he's revealed himself through his relationship with the chosen people of Israel. And that story starts in Genesis. It continues all the way through to Malachi. And here we are pretty early in the story where the people have come out of Egypt. They've begun the conquest across the Jordan. You can read in the previous chapters about some of their earliest military victories in the Promised Land with the defeat of King Sihon and the defeat of King Og. What a great name. Our King Og sounds very Old Testament, doesn't it? And now they are dwelling in Moab, and the king of Moab is afraid of them. And so his plan is to bring in this prophet, this seer, as we will see, to curse the people of Israel. Balak has this dilemma. He's looking for a spiritual answer. He's looking to turn to the gods to try to come up with a solution to his political problem. Now, the answer that he receives from this hitherto unknown seer, this son of Beor who dwells at Pethor near the river the Euphrates, I'm imagining that this is a description of a place that is south of Carchemish, if you know where Carchemish is on your map, along the Euphrates River in the northwest part of the Mesopotamia region. Often we just think of Assyria and Babylon, the part of Mesopotamia where Iraq and Iran are today. But Mesopotamia actually extends much further to the northwest as the Euphrates and Tigris rivers continue that way. And so here he's dwelling along the Euphrates River in a place probably close to where the Arameans are at that time, the northern part of that territory. The geography is not as important. It's a little confusing. The point is, he's calling in this well-known seer, and let's see how the story continues there in verse 6. His message was, Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed." So Balaam has a reputation that extends far and wide. And when Balak, the king of Moab, has a problem, he's got a guy on his list. He's like, no, he lives a long ways away, but we're going to send to Balaam because I know that when he blesses somebody, they get blessed 
And when he curses somebody, they get cursed. So this is my best bet to be able to bring this guy to curse my enemies. That's Balak's plan. I wish their names weren't so similar. That's going to be difficult for me throughout the sermon, but you'll know whether I'm talking about the king or the prophet. So let's look at the answer then that comes to him in verses 7 through 14. And this is where Balaam looks really good. His reputation is solid, and his reply to the king is also full of integrity. Let's take a look at what it says there in verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination. The fees for divination, that's a clue here that something is amiss. God forbids divination. And so whether or not Balaam engages in divination, that's what Balak thinks he's doing. And so he sends the fees for divination. Divination was occultic practices in order to inquire of the gods. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight. So his response to the messengers is, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Oh, that's interesting. He's referring to the Lord. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, throughout the Torah. This is not just any God he's talking about. He's not just talking about the high God. He's talking about the specific covenant name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. I'm going to inquire of Yahweh and see what he has to speak to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam. Okay, so he's talking about Yahweh and God comes and speaks to him. So this man is a genuine prophet who has the ability to inquire of the Lord and God responds to his inquiries. This is giving us the borders, the edges of the puzzle about Balaam. And so far... This is looking like a good picture of a powerful and good man. And this is what it says next. So God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land, for the Lord, Yahweh, has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So good on Balaam. You know, he he inquires of the Lord. He says, You stay here, I'll tell you in the morning what the Lord says. And the Lord says, you can't go, you can't curse them, these people are blessed. That's the word. And so that's what he tells them. He tells them exactly what the Lord said. So far, so good for Balaam. However, that's not the end of the story. If it was the end of the story, then it probably wouldn't be in the Bible. But God has more to say on this, and Balaam is a complicated person. Let's go on then to verse 15. There's a second try. Once again, Balak sent princes, more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. For whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, 
Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, he's got this treasure house full of all of his silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So Yahweh is his God. He will not go beyond the command. He can't be bought. He's a man of integrity and a true servant of the Lord. So you too, please stay here tonight. Wait, what? okay, why that? Please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. So, this is interesting. He's a man who is committed to his integrity. However, that doesn't stop him from asking the Lord perhaps if he's changed his mind. He's not going to do anything that the Lord doesn't say, but maybe I can ask again, maybe I'll get a different response. This is where things start to go wrong for Balaam. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now this is interesting. God has kind of changed his mind. The first time God said, you can't go, you can't curse them. Balaam comes back a second time and says, "Hmm, how about now? Can I go now? And God says, okay, you can go but you only say what I tell you to say. He lets him have his second request. Balaam is convinced that he's only going to do what God will command, what God will allow, but he's pushing it. He's kind of saying, okay, I really would like to go. I won't go if you don't want me to, but can I? And you know, that's the way we are, and that's the way our kids are. Parents can relate to this, right? You tell your kids, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And they come back to you a day later and they're like, well, you know, the situation's maybe changed and, and I'd really like this or that. And you're like, okay, fine. If you want to do it, do it, but be very careful about this and that. That's the situation that we have going on here. And so Balaam is happy that he gets to go. But God is not happy about the situation. God said you can go, but he really doesn't like it. And that's what comes across then in the next section. Let's pick it up again in verses 21 through 35. Balaam gets up in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He goes with these princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. That's interesting. This donkey is able to see an angel. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Now, you might imagine that a donkey would not be so evasive as to be able to avoid an angel or the angel of the Lord. However, this is all part of God's plan. God is allowing the donkey to see. God is allowing the donkey to evade. If God wanted to, he could outsmart the donkey. But this is all for Balaam's sake. This is a lesson for Balaam. So Balaam, he is upset at the donkey for going out of the road because he doesn't see the angel that the donkey does. And Balaam strikes the donkey to turn her back into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall, so like skirting around one side of the messenger of death here, and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So it's like, donkey, what are you doing? Going up against the wall, there's enough room here to walk. Why are you scraping my leg along the wall? So 
he gets mad and he strikes the donkey again. Then in verse 26, the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. The donkey can't get out of this one, can't go into the field, can't go along the side of the wall. This is a death trap right here. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. Like, nope, we've got to stop right here, no going forward. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Like we have here up in the picture, right? Donkey's laying down, he's got his staff, and he's mad. And then something even more strange happens. If it wasn't enough for a donkey to be able to see the angel and to be able to skirt around the angel, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? Now, if you're Balaam, you might stop and wonder, How did my donkey learn how to talk? But he's angry, he's upset, so he just goes with it. You know, sometimes when you're angry, you're not really thinking about the logic of the situation, and, and he's, he's ready to argue. He's like, all right, you want to argue? I'll argue with you. Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. Now, he's traveling with the princes here, and he can't control his own donkey. He looks like a fool. You made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down, and he fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Well, that's not your major sin there. Your major sin is that you kept pestering God to do something that he told you was not what he wanted you to do. That's where you should be confessing your sin rather than the fact that you beat your donkey because you didn't understand that your donkey was trying to save your life. So he confesses sin, but not as much as he should have. But then he goes on, and now he figures it out. He says, now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. So he says, okay, I'm sorry. I pushed, I pushed. And I'll just go back because I can see that, that you're angry. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Nope, we've already started on this path. We're going to finish it. He says, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So, what does this tell us? The fact that God intervenes here with a threat of death against Balaam, if he were to be tempted to give Balak what he wanted and to curse the people of Israel whom God said you are not allowed to curse. This reveals that Balaam was on the verge of giving in to the temptation. That he was just taking that step, taking that step, and God knows if I just leave Balaam alone, he's going to curse the people of Israel. And so I have to impress upon him how important this is. You do what I say or you are a dead man is basically the message that has been given here. So he has prevented Balaam from doing what Balaam would have done if God had not intervened in this miraculous way. So, verse 36. That helps you understand why God is angry, even though God told him that he could go. 
Pick it up in verse 36 where now finally Balak and Balaam come face to face. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon, that's the river, at the extremity of the border of Moab. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you to call you? Why did you not come to me like the first time? Am I not able to honor you? Do you think I'm some petty king that doesn't have any gold, that doesn't have any power, that can't reward you? Is that why you didn't come the first time? Why did you delay when I called you? Don't you know how much I can give you? The king is kind of insulted. and He's asking why you didn't come. Picking up in verse 38, Balaam answered back to Balak, Behold, I have come to you, but have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. From there he saw a fraction of the people. Now, Balaam, he knows his place. He's been reminded. I'm just a mouthpiece. Without God, I have nothing, no power, no insight. I'm just another man. I'm going to stand by my integrity. I'm only going to speak what God has given me to speak because I fear God more than I fear you, king of Moab. So this is a great response. He's learned his lesson. He's answering correctly. And so that brings us then to Balaam's first oracle in chapter 23. Isn't this a great story? I love preaching it. Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. So this sacrifice that he's offering to Yahweh, the Lord, much similar to the types of sacrifices that God taught Moses and the people to give. And Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord, again, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him. And behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up this discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the land of the Arameans, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse? whom God has not cursed. How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. This is the holiness, the separation of God from the pagan nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? It sounds very much like Genesis chapter 12. He who blesses you, I will bless. He who curses you, I will curse. I will make your descendants like the sand of the seashore, as he promised in the further reiterations of the Abrahamic covenant, that you can't count the dust or number the fourth part of Israel. And then notice this last part. Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. Here, Israel is the upright, and he wants to have his destiny connected with the blessing that God has upon Israel. Well, that is the word of the Lord. 
here this man is giving in the face of a pagan king the exact opposite of what the king wants because he's being faithful to the truth and not able to be bought or intimidated. Well, this edges of the puzzle are making Balaam look very good despite the fact that God had to warn him and threatened his life on the way. He seems to have taken the lesson well to heart and he's standing strong. Now, of course, you can imagine that Balak is not happy about this. That Balaam has basically been leading Balak on. You know, Balak has made it very clear what his intentions are. This is why I'm bringing you here. I want you to curse Israel. And Balaam has been pretty clear about his intentions. He said, well, I'm going to do whatever God tells me to do. He didn't say, God has blessed this people and there is no way I will ever be able to curse them. Now, if he had done that, then Balak would have given up. He would have been like, okay, I guess he's not going to do it. But he didn't. He just said, I'm just going to say whatever God tells me to say. And there's a little bit of ambiguity. He's leaving some hope for Balak. And Balak's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. I think this is going to work out. So he's leading Balak on, and now Balak is upset. Balak is figuring out that you weren't as forthright as I would have liked you to have been. You were giving me some hope that maybe I could get what I wanted. Why did you come all this way to do the exact opposite of what I wanted you to do? And so that's what Balak says in verse 11. What have you done to me? I had took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And Balaam, you know, answers back, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? You know, I'm just doing what I told you I was going to do, and I'm just telling you what God says. So you can get the picture here of the frustration on both sides. Nobody's really getting what they want. Balaam is not getting the silver and gold that he was hoping for. Balak is not getting the curse that he hoped for. And all that's happening is that these guys are angry at each other. So then we have a second oracle. Balak does not give up easy. He's like, okay, so far, so bad. But let's keep trying. <laughs> he has no understanding of God. Balak's understanding of God is that God is like all of the other gods that he has known. And he thinks that the God who speaks through the prophet Balaam is a capricious God. He's a God that can change his mind. He's a God that, oh, if you pray in this place, you might get one answer, but if you pray in this place, you might get another answer. See, Balak, the king of Moab, is superstitious, he's foolish, and he thinks that God, the true God, is like the demons that he's been worshiping through the idols. You can buy the demons. You can pester the demons and eventually they'll give you what you want, these false gods. God is not that way. God is not a man. God is not a demon. He doesn't change his mind. He is God. And it doesn't matter where you pray. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. You're not going to change the mind of God once God has made his will known. Look at what it says then in verse 13. They keep trying like fools. So Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them. So maybe you can curse this part, but you can't curse that part, right? And you shall see all of them. Then curse them for me from there. I've got to get something out of this deal. You're making me look bad. So he took them to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar, just like last time. Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. 
And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Let's get it right this time, okay? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. I'm sure that Balaam wasn't too excited about giving that message back. But what's he going to do? He's stuck between God and a king, and he knows... I can't go against God, so I'm going to take my chances with upsetting Balak. And so Balak, he says to Balaam, don't curse them at all, don't bless them at all. Stop it, stop talking about them. But Balaam answered, Balak, didn't I tell you? Yeah, you told me, shut up. All that the Lord says, that I must do. And Balak said to Balaam, come now. He don't give up easy. I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did, as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Whew, get ready for disappointment. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, okay, Balaam's figured it out, right? He's like, nothing's going to change God's mind on this. He's, he's dead set on blessing the people of Israel. Balaam's finally got the picture, right? So he doesn't go uh, at other times to look for omens. Now, that's an interesting phrase there, to look for omens. Now, looking for omens is not language that you would use to describe a genuine prophet. So this, perhaps, starts to fill in a piece of the puzzle here that while Balaam fears the Lord and he does have actual access to talk to God and God speaks to him, that Balaam is not completely right in how he goes about this. You know, his sacrifices and his altars, you know, they don't sound too bad. But when it says to go and look for omens, that's like, oh wait, that, that's a piece of the puzzle that's like, eh, gives a little negative light here on Balaam. That doesn't sound the way that you talk about a guy who is solely devoted to Jehovah. But instead of looking for omens, he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, this is interesting, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. This has the idea there in that last part of verse 4, some kind of trance-like state where you fall down in some kind of prophetic trance, but your eyes are open and that this is some way that the prophetic word came through him. And then this is the word, starting in verse 5. 
How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He said that before. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and he shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Remember Genesis 12. In you all the nations shall be blessed. He who blesses you is blessed, he who curses you is cursed. God is reiterating his promises through this wayward, pagan, I don't know, confusing, complex prophet. Let's put it that way. And Balak's anger was kindled. Yeah, to say the least, right? Verse 10. And he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now, flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers? Yes, you told my messengers. Whom you sent to me. If Balak should give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. The latter days. Now we're moving forward past the time of Joshua, which is coming up here in the next generation. We're going forward in time a number of generations. This phrase, latter days, refers to far future events. A very fascinating oracle here, starting in verse 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So here we have an oracle about the future Messiah, God's chosen king who is going to destroy the enemies of Israel. It could be referencing David, but ultimately looking ahead to the conquest of Jesus Christ as king of kings and lord of lords. And then verse 20 He looked on Amalek, a nation surrounding Israel, and he took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you captive. Assyrians, the Asher, the Assyrians are going to take this Kenite city that is thought to be impregnable captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Katim, that's the Greek part of the world, and shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. So God foretells a lot of what is going to happen in the future here 
through this seer, through this prophet, Balaam, as he came and blessed the people of Israel. Now, we won't go into the full details of the prophecy because that's not our point this morning. We've still got to get to the rest of the puzzle here about Balaam. Is Balaam a good guy or is he not a good guy? And so far, by and large, he looks like a good guy. If you just read Numbers 22 to 24, Balaam arises, goes back to his place. Balak also went his way. And it's like, well, mission accomplished. Good job. You delivered the word of the Lord. You didn't give in to your greed. You didn't give in to the temptation to be afraid of Balak's threats. Balak was too superstitious to strike Balaam. He thought, well, if I strike Balaam, you know, the gods will strike me. So he just sends him away, angry. And so it seems like all's well that ends well. But that's not the last thing we hear about Balaam. Come to chapter 31, verse 8. Here, Israel is fighting against the people of Midian, the Midianites. And we're told in verse 8 that Israel killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. And it lists the names of the kings there. There are five kings. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Balaam, what are you doing fighting against Israel? I mean, weren't you just a few chapters earlier saying how blessed they were and how God was going to make them so victorious? What are you doing on the wrong side here, Balaam? And we're not really told why he's killed there. He's just mentioned in that verse that that happens. And then come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. After Numbers, then we've got the book of Deuteronomy. And Balaam is mentioned here in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5. Here God is saying, Who can come into the assembly of the Lord in Israel and who cannot? And he says in verse 3, No Ammonite, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. So they were not a part of the group that there was the Canaanites who were supposed to be destroyed. But they did oppose Israel and did not act friendly towards Israel. And so that's why they are excluded as a people from the Israel congregation and the worship of the Lord. And notice what he says. Not only were they not friendly, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. So here, Moses is making it clear that Balaam did want to curse Israel, but God wouldn't let him. And that's how God prevented him by sending the angel of the Lord and threatening his life. This was how God prevented Balaam from doing what he wanted to do, and that was to curse the people of Israel and receive all the honor and the gold and the silver that Balak had to give to him. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing. So we're not thanking Balaam for this. We're thanking the Lord for this. The Lord is the one who brought about this blessing through Balaam when Balaam didn't really want to. He was kind of forced against his will to do the right thing. Because the Lord your God loved you. All right. So as we get a fuller picture of his death and this final word in the book of Deuteronomy, which is also echoed in Joshua and also in the book of Nehemiah and in Micah. The rest of the Old Testament says, well, Balaam, yeah, he spoke the truth, he spoke the word of the Lord, but he doesn't really get the credit for it. He wanted to curse the people, and it was God who turned that curse into a blessing. So that then makes more sense when we come to the New Testament. The center of the puzzle is really the New Testament references to Balaam. So come with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, Verses 15 and 16. 
not only in Second Peter, but also in Jude. And then finally in Revelation chapter 2, we have this trio of references to the prophet, the seer, Balaam, and what is his legacy? What are we supposed to ultimately take away from this puzzle of this man's life? And here the center of it comes together and we start to see the whole picture as the New Testament writers portray it and paint it for us. So here in 2 Peter chapter 2, we've got a whole chapter devoted to a warning to the churches about the danger of false teachers who are creeping into the churches and are leading Christians astray from sound doctrine. And this is what he says about those false teachers in verse 15. He says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Now, God prevented him from that gain from wrongdoing, but that doesn't change the fact that he loved it and he wanted it. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. And if God had not stepped in here supernaturally, the prophet would have gone mad for greed and for honor, and he would have cursed those whom God had blessed. The scripture makes it clear. That's the takeaway. When we're thinking about Balaam, don't think uh, he's a true prophet of the Lord who was a man of integrity who couldn't be bought and did the right thing. That's all true. But there's more to the puzzle than just that. And the rest of the puzzle shows us that Balaam was an evil man and a bad example. Come with me also to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. There in verse 14, God is speaking to the church that dwells in Pergamum. And he says, I have a few things against you, church. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You say, well, wait a second. I just read Numbers 22 to 24 and didn't say anything about that. Where did Balaam teach Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel? Well, here is the key piece of the puzzle. The key piece of the puzzle is what Jesus Christ points out here in his letter to the church in Pergamum, that what is the defining act of Balaam? What led to his death that we read about back in the book of Numbers? It was this, that he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. I kept that last piece of the puzzle out for this last moment to make it stand out all the more. And it is in Numbers, so you've got to go back to Numbers. Chapter 31, once again. Shortly after the verse that describes the death of Balaam in chapter 31, verse 8, you come down to verse 16, and you find out that the Midianites, whom they've been fighting against, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So this is referring, in its context, to the incident of Peor, which is back in Numbers chapter 25. Back up a few chapters to chapter 25. I love how Scripture gives us these puzzles. They're fun to put together. Try to, to figure out, why was Balaam such a bad guy when he looked so good 
in Numbers 22 to 24. Well, back in chapter 25, Balaam's name is not mentioned here in the opening verses of chapter 25. Last we heard of Balaam as he rose and went back to his place. But the story says, chapter 25, verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, sometime later, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Worshiping false gods and committing immorality. This is the sin of worshiping the Baal at Peor. And so you put the pieces of the puzzle together, and here's what happened after Balaam stood strong and declared the word of the Lord and feared God and not man. Balaam found a way. His greed found a way. He's like, okay, my integrity as a prophet depends on the fact that I don't utter false prophecies. And so I'm not going to utter any false prophecies. But I really want to make Balak happy. I really want to get the reward. And so the idea came to him. And he's like, ah, I know what I can do. It won't sacrifice my integrity. I'll still have been a man who spoke God's word and, and only what God said. I'm going to teach Balak how to get God to curse Israel. And Balaam is a man with enough spiritual insight that he knows if we can get Israel to stop worshiping the Lord alone and to yoke themselves to the Baals and to start to intermarry with the Moabites and you have your women attract them and, and to tempt them and say, come, come be a part of our religion and come worship with our God and come to our sacrifices. Then God will punish his people and you'll bring God's curse down upon his people. So Balaam found a way to get what he wanted. That's why Balaam is an evil man. This is the missing piece of the puzzle that changes the whole picture. If you were just looking at the picture that you get from Numbers 22 to 24, you'd be like, Balaam's complex and he had his problems, but he's a true prophet and a good guy. But then you put this piece of the puzzle in and you're like, oh, maybe not. And you read the New Testament and the New Testament's like, yeah, exactly. Maybe not. Definitely not. Now why is this here? Why do we spend the time on a Sunday morning to talk about some prophet from 1,450 years before Christ? Because Jesus points him out. And the apostles point him out as an example of what we need to be on guard against, what we need to look out for. That there are false teachers in the church today. And Jesus has a beef against his church that they put up with and listen to these false teachers who have the same spirit, the same attitude as Balaam. These false teachers, they look good. They're like, I'm just telling you what God's word says and I can't be bought and, and I'm going to preach God's word. And yet there's something not right there. You're like, hmm, I don't know. What is it? What's the missing piece of the puzzle here? And you hear things and it's like, well, that doesn't seem right. But over here he looks really good. In the end, there are people who are men of integrity. And yet they are wicked. And they take the wrong side. And in the end, instead of blessing God's people, they bring a curse down on God's people. And these are the types of false teachers that we need to be on guard against. We need to be looking out for. Don't be naive. Don't be a fool. People are complex. You can't just say, well, yeah, that's good. He's good. All's good. No. You've got to examine everything carefully. 
And you've got to test people and find out where is their heart? What is their greatest desire? Why are they doing what they're doing? Balaam was not a man of integrity because he loved God. He was a man of integrity because his reputation depended upon it. That's why he was a man of integrity. It was for him. And there's a lot of preachers like that. Not because they love God. It's because their job depends upon it. I can't contradict what the Bible says or you'll fire me and then I've got to go wait tables again. Over time, you'll be able to tell. Does someone truly love God or do they just love themselves? That's what you've got to be looking out for. That's what Jesus is looking out for. And that's what he wants, the church to be pure and holy in its devotion to him. The other thing we learn about Balaam and Balak is that there are many people who will try to convince you, I'm not just talking about teachers here, I'm talking about Christians in general, that they are eagerly seeking God's will and that they just don't know what God's will is in this area. And they're praying and they're fasting and they're seeking and they're looking for wise counsel. I just want to know God's will. When God has made his will abundantly clear and they just don't like what God's will is and so they pretend like they don't know what God's will is. And they're pretending like, well, I'm searching. I'm going to offer sacrifices. I'm going to be religious and I'm going to find out what God's will is. And when God finally tells me what I want to hear, ah, now I've got it. That's God's will. So many people, they're looking for a church that's going to tell them what they want to hear. Looking for a pastor, looking for a counselor. Tell me what I want to hear. And, and if you don't tell them what they want to hear, they'll just go find another pastor in another church until they, they hear what they want to hear. And then, ah, finally, discovered God's will. You discovered your own will long ago. And you rejected God's will long ago. Let's not play these games. Beware of this danger of seeking to use God instead of serving God. Balaam and Balak, they wanted to use God. They didn't truly love God or want to serve him. Don't follow in their footsteps and don't follow people who do follow in their footsteps. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the warning that Jesus Christ has given to us in the church. We who have ears to hear, let us hear what the Spirit is saying in the churches. To be on our guard against those who fall into the error of Balaam who love the wages of doing what is wrong, who only serve you when it serves their own purposes. Lord, let us be different. Let us be true. Let us be found in your sight to be people who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we might die the death of the upright and share in the glory of the people of Israel. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our great example. Amen.